Well, good morning again, uh, for those who are joining us a little bit later today. Um, as we do gather, I'd like to continue uh, forward in our sermon series, uh, The Story, where we explore the grand narrative that God has been planning from literally the start of the universe until its very end. Um, now, last week, we, we finally begin to see the stage, or we begin to see the stage set, um, looking at the beginning of the universe, exploring God's absolute power and God's absolute authority over everything he created. Uh, we also saw what our place, our place as humans, what our place is within God's very, very good creation, that we're supposed to serve with, we're supposed to serve God, but we're also supposed to serve alongside God as co-rulers as well within God's creation. Uh, but while we lived in this paradise, uh, we quickly learned that something begins to come into this world that simply does not belong. And in our story, we're going to see that this comes in the form of a serpent, of a snake that brings discord and lies uh, wherever it goes. So let's just quickly take a look at that in our passage today, which comes from Genesis 3, and we're going to be reading verses 1 to 15. So Genesis 3, verses 1 to 15. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruits of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and the, the, man and the wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he's walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruits from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And so, this, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Now, as we look at this passage, um, we're going to be talking today about three things. We're going to be talking about what sin is, we're going to be talking about the impact sin has in our lives, uh, but we're also going to take a look at a very interesting promised hope that God gives in this passage. Let's take a look at our, our first sermon point today, Sin Examined. Uh, now, while I was reading this passage, I think it's, it's pretty clear that if God's creation indeed is good, 
And there was certainly a time when there was no sin in creation nor in, in our human experience. Then the coming of death, of decay, of lies, deceit, discord, this marked a very pivotal moment in history where we understand that sin is fundamentally an intruder in God's good creation. Sin is simply something that does not belong in this world. And when I was thinking of illustrations or ideas of things that, that don't belong, uh, it suddenly dawned upon me that there is such a clear example that is very rampant going on in Brooklyn. Uh, now on Wednesday, our, our secretary Amy and I were just leaving the church uh, to go on our lunch break uh, when suddenly behind us there was some guy riding those like gigantic uh, electric scooters on a crowded sidewalk on 60th Street. And every time I would see one of those scooters on the sidewalk, it would, it would literally bother me to no end because they, they simply do not belong on the sidewalk. Uh, I would always tell Amy with, with such anger, like, there, there are roads for a reason. You can't, you can't just, like, barrel down a sidewalk 20 miles per hour while there's other people walking. You know, that's simply so dangerous. And so while we were ordering our, our food from the hall carts uh, in front of the subway station on 8th Ave, um, I told Amy, you know, I guarantee, I guarantee I'll be able to grab a picture of someone on their scooter riding on the sidewalk. And lo and behold, you know, before we even got our food, you know, I was able to snag these two pictures. Uh, truly, truly a terrifying scene. Now, of course, you know, I'm not trying to you know, shame these people. I'm sure they're just trying to get to their destination as quickly as possible to hustle for another book, to, to get their deliveries done. You know, they're just trying to do their job as efficiently as they can. But it is, unfortunately, in fact, dangerous because, again, motorized vehicles simply do not belong on a path that's meant for humans to walk on. And I'll admit, you know, I'm definitely biased about this because several close calls, I, I've had several close calls, but again, the point of the matter is that this is something that just simply does not belong. And so when we look at sin, we see that it is the same way. The first thing we understand about sin is that sin is an intruder and it does not belong at all in God's creation. Unlike other religions that talk about good and evil in this sort of eternal struggle, we see that in the beginning, there was no eternal struggle. Evil was simply not present at all. Evil did not exist. God was not at war with some equally strong evil deity. And if this is the case, then we truly understand that sin does not belong in this world that we live in. And I think anyone who has experienced any suffering or seen any suffering in this world, they innately understand this. When we look at the damage and destruction caused by hurricanes in the past week, or when we look at the war in Ukraine and innocent people are, are caught in between, we witness these tragedies and none of us would ever say, well, this is how things should be. People should die. Like, no one in their right mind would ever say that. We might acknowledge, sure, you know, this is how things are right now, but I don't believe any of us would ever say this is how things should be. Most of us, when we think about how the world should be, we see an image or we see a glimpse of paradise. We see a glimpse of God's original good creation. We see that evil and destruction is an intrusion into the world, and we believe that it simply does not belong. 
However, sin is not just an intruder, but sin is also hubris or pride, and that sin is actively setting oneself against God. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, one of the most common words to refer to sin is kata, uh, which means to fail or to miss the goal or miss the mark. And so in the book of Proverbs, right, it warns against people making hasty decisions because they would kata, they would miss their destination, they would miss their goal, or they would fail to reach it. However, when it comes to our own moral failings and our failure to even reach God's moral standard, it's not enough to say that we miss the mark. In fact, it's more accurate to say we aim for an entirely different target altogether. And so when we see idolatry in Scripture where the Israelites worship foreign gods, they're not just missing the mark, they're not even trying to aim for it. Or for us living in modern times where we turn money, politics, or even academics into our quote-unquote God, we again are aiming entirely at the wrong target. And because we have set ourselves deliberately and intentionally against God, the impacts of sin begin to reveal themselves in our lives. And so what are some of these impacts? Well, the main impact we see is that our relationships as a whole are perverted. And this happens for us in three ways. The first way is that we see that our relationship with creation is now distorted or perverted. Uh, in one sense, we are no longer good stewards of God's creation. Uh, in an article published in Nature, one of the most reputable journals on science, their 2019 article states that up to one million plants and animals species face extinction because of human activities. And so we see that we have deliberately also set ourselves against creation. But on the flip side, we also see that creation has set itself against us. Later on in Genesis uh, chapter 3, verses 17 to 19, two, two verses after the one I stopped at, God clearly tells Adam the consequences of his own action. God tells him, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat from all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. So you see creation against Adam, and you'll eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you'll eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you are taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. And so we see that even creation itself has set itself against us, and that even trying to acquire food, the basic necessity of life, will come with suffering. So our relationship with creation is distorted, but our relationship even with ourselves and with society is distorted as well. Um, after my Wednesday night Bible study, Artie, he, he kindly drove me home, and he kind of mentioned that the near insane states of the world where people are committing acts of violence for simply no reason, right? He mentioned, you know, if people were robbed, at least, at least there's a motive involved, but we see that in our city, even in our city, we see violence for violence' sake. You know, it's increasing evermore. And this is absolutely, you know, insane. Hosea, when he was looking at the sin of his own nation nearly 2,700 years ago, he says something that is just as accurate as today. He says this, There's no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There's only cursing, lying, murder, stealing, and adultery. They break all 
abounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Because of this, the land dries up and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the fish in the sea are all swept away. And even looking at our relationship with ourselves reveals that there is corruption in that as well. At times, it's so bizarre. At times, how do we, how do we even feel at odds with our own body? How do we, why do we even struggle with our own bodies and minds in order to force them to cooperate to do what is good for us? And a brief glance even at mental health disorders or even autoimmune disorders show that even our own bodies, even our own minds, fail to operate in a manner that it was originally created for. And so we see that our relationship with creation is distorted, our relationship with society and ourselves are distorted, and finally, we see that our relationship with God is also distorted. Because we have set ourselves against God, rather than our relationship being defined by intimacy, it is now defined by alienation and separation. In our sin, rather than hearing, well done, good and faithful servants, we instead hear the dreaded words where Christ says, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. That in the states of humanity, in sin, we know that we intentionally, where we intentionally walk away from God, we know that there is now a sense of estrangement, a sense of separation where both parties are now separate. God and humanity are now separate. Where neither humanity knows God nor will God know us because we have intentionally walked away. But in the midst of this estrangement, this separation from God, in the midst of our separation from creation, from society, and even our separation from ourselves, there's actually a promise of hope. Although we set ourselves as the enemies of God, God's response to our rebellion isn't quite what we would actually expect. So let's take a look at that uh, in our final sermon points, Restoration Promised. And if we look at Genesis 3, uh, verses 14 to 15, we see that God wages a declaration of war. We see God saying to the serpent, Cursed are you above all livestock and of all wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly. You'll eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and, bring, and between her offspring, uh, between your offspring and hers. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And in this declaration of war, we see that although we as humans have set ourselves up against as enemies of God, God's declaration of war isn't against us, even though we are at fault. Instead, God's declaration of war is against sin and evil itself. Although we curse God's name day and night, although we refuse to worship him, although we aim at an entirely different target, God's primary target in this war is the intruder, is sin itself, against sin, against death, and all the corruption that it brings into this world. And God promises one day that there will come a man who will crush the head of the serpent and remove this intruder once and all, for all from his creation. But moreover, for humanity created in God's image, there is hope for us as well. 
Although it is true that there is a sense of alienation and separation from God where humanity desires to be totally separate from God, it's actually not true in the reverse. It's not true that God wants to be separate from us. Whereas before the fall, God's relationship with humanity was in harmony where he saw, as, saw us as lawful and as good servants, as good co-rulers. After the fall, God does not forsake us. Instead, God now relates to us in a different way. God now relates to humanity as people in need of a savior, as people who need to be redeemed, not destroyed. And so just as we explored a few weeks ago that the Israelites, when they were in need of redemption from slavery in Egypt, God saw the same in humanity as well, that we too need to be freed from slavery. Slavery not in the sense of oppressive regimes, but our true slavery to the kingdom of evil and death. To free us from the curse of death itself, but to also set us free from evil so that we can once again set our eyes on what is truly good and act in a manner that is truly good. To once again be servants and co-workers with God within this good creation that we live in. And in order to do this, in order to achieve this, God had to pay the full price of sin itself. St. Anselm of Canterbury, he once asked, who has pondered the weight of sin? Simple question. Who has pondered the weight of sin? Who truly here understands the toll it has taken on humanity? and on creation. I think most people, they, they trivialize the weight of sin and they only see it as disobedience or bad thoughts or bad motives. It's truly much worse than that. To answer Anselm's question of who has pondered the weight of sin, Anselm himself, he responds by saying this, by the one who has truly pondered the weight of the cross. By looking at the price paid on the cross, we see the full weight of the disease that has worked its way into God's world and into our lives. And on the cross, we see that sin is so absolutely disgusting, so absolutely vile to God, something so unfit into God's kingdom that he must send his own son to cure this disease. And through the cross, we see that God pays for this disease and this curse with his own life. Christ on the cross dies an absolutely shameful death, naked and humiliated, re literally rejected by the world, betrayed by his own disciples. Right? This is not some sort of dramatic storytelling. This is not God's way of guilting us to worship him. Christ had to die on the cross because the full weight of the disease can only be taken by God. And for a while, this weight of sin itself even put our God, Christ, into the grave. And that is the full weight of sin, that even God himself must die. But on the cross, we also see a different image. We see a love that extends beyond all love. We see a God who literally goes the distance, a God who does not hold back, but is willing to take on the full burden of sin and judgment on himself. 
a God who is not only faithful to his promises given to Adam and Eve of crushing the head of the serpent, but God is also faithful to us who are rebels, to us who rejected him, to us who scorned him and humiliated him, to those who were even celebrating, rejoicing at his death, to those who even murdered him, God delights to show his love to those types of people, even to the ones who put him there on the cross. And through this love, Christ invites all of us back to where we truly belong, back into his kingdom. This is simply a God who refuses to give up, a God whose love and faithfulness endures forever. So why don't we come together uh, in prayer and worship uh, this Lord? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our, our hearts are burdened today when we truly ponder the, the weight of sin and the cross. Uh, we see the weight and the burden you have carried on our behalf, and we're grieved. But at the same time, we, we see a glimpse of just how much your love and faithfulness is for all of us. Uh, we cannot put into words how grateful we are. We, we cannot express the emotions within our hearts. Uh, but we know that you understand the love that we have for you. You have freed us and lifted us from the curse of sin. And today we, we simply say, thank you, Father. Thank you for what you have done. Thank you for what you're doing in our lives. And we thank you for what you will continue to do long after we're gone. We eagerly anticipate and we eagerly wait for your return when we will one day be able to walk alongside you once again. But until then, encourage us. Uh, encourage us to be faithful to you in love. Encourage us to be faithful in love to one another. And we pray all of this in your precious son's name. Amen.